0: Welcome back to the Limited Upside, coming at you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. That's a new thing here, right, guys? Check it out. Um, We had a great show today. This was a lot of fun. We had one of, uh, Mike and I are one of our favorite writers on. His name's Chris Herring. He works for 538.com. You should go check out his stuff. Um, We did a a little bit of a deep dive into uh, an article he wrote recently on the magic and kind of chaos of the Warriors offense. So we got pretty into that. Between Mike and Chris, I had some of the, the deepest analytical NBA thinkers, so it was a, a really fun discussion, uh, and I think you'll all really like it. But before you listen to this, please rate, subscribe, review, all those good things we always ask for. Uh, it's an iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, on platform at SBNation.com backslash MBA. That's where you can find us. We really do appreciate that. And you can always send us questions. Those questions go to MikePreda at SBNation.com. That's email. You can also find us on Twitter. That's at SBN at limited underscore upside and at epiben we get to our questions we love when our listeners send us those they help us move the conversation along so those are always greatly appreciated Uh, and uh, i think you'll really enjoy this uh this limited upside here again that was chris herring of 538.com and 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 go check out his stuff he's a great writer uh, and i think you'll really enjoy this one this is the limited upside podcast All right, welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. We have a very special guest today. We have Chris Herring
1: from 538.com. Chris, thanks for joining us, bud.
2: Oh, no problem at all. Thank you guys so much for having me on. How hey,
1: are hey. you enjoying uh, sunny Cleveland right now? Because you're there for game four of the conference finals, which will probably have happened by the time most of y'all <laughs> have been listening.
2: Uh, well, it's, it's sunny. I can say that about <laughs> Cleveland. Uh, I guess there's always a lot of things you could say about it, but... <laughs> A little annoyed. I I came here um, late last night hoping to, um, I I literally just put out a story about J.R. Smith and kind of the way he defends, which I feel like, (laughs) you know, normally that's not what you focus on when you talk about J.R., but I came out here to get him at a shoot around or a practice so I could try to plug some quotes into a fun story that I had about him and got to the shoot around and then jr wasn't available to speak uh which is frustrating i've covered the guy for years and so he and i know each other personally um but by the time you know the the pr guy ran to go get him he was already in the locker room and so it's just um that was the main reason i was coming here i you know i've got other story ideas i'm working on too but um you know like to get players voices into the story but cleveland itself it's, it's pretty today it's a nice day uh, hopefully there's good basketball yeah. uh, later in the night. We'll see what happens. That's
0: auspicious. That's what we like to hear. And, and I guess the best reason that we have you on here is because Mike and I are fans of your writing. Uh, and specifically, you wrote a piece earlier this week. It was called The Beautiful Chaos of the Warriors Offense. I think everybody, if you're listening to this, go check it out. It's on 538.com. And I guess uh, Mike and I were talking a little earlier. And one of the things we really like about it is that it makes something that's kind of a niche part of the NBA world. That's the X's and O's, the, the analytics, kind of the, the lines within the game that the casual fan doesn't necessarily see. You know, we watch the flow of the game. You can see Steph Curry and Kevin Durant's excellence at shooting threes. But how do they get open? What makes Draymond such an important player? Things like that. And you do a great job of making that very universal in, in how you write about it. And, and Mike, this is something that you do extremely well uh, you know, with Praetis Pictures and doing for a long time. So I'd love to pick both your brains about how you make something that is. You know the minutiae of the game, the, the, the very ins and outs of how you get to where you want to be on a court, the offensive flow of basketball, but you make that something that somebody like myself could be watching the game, and all of a sudden last night, I'm seeing the little back screens that you were talking about in your piece, the little backdoor cuts that maybe a McGraw makes or something like that off of a screen from a Steph Curry, and not the vice versa. So I'd love to get your thoughts on sort of, you know, why you wrote this piece, and then how you really go about making this a worldly and an applicable thing for the entire NBA community who might not necessarily be as entrenched in the day-to-day of the film world.
2: I, I just wanted to, you know, and I've done this a couple times the last year. I wanted to write something that speaks to exactly how unusual this team is and why, I mean, we know you're not telling anyone anything new when you point out how much talent they have. I think we know that, but I think, you know, what, a lot of us develop a greater respect for when you watch them play is that, I mean, even great talent will not win you games every night. I mean, probably the best, most recent example, that Miami team, when when they formed in 2011, 2012, or was it 10-11? I can't remember now.
1: I think 10-11.
2: all this week. (laughs) But you think think about that team, and, and I mean, they had a losing record at one point, you know, pretty – deep into a season and i obviously turned stuff around incredibly quickly i mean you knew they were going to figure it out at some point there was too much talent not to but the truth is i mean the warriors lost that first game and then i think they had another stumble against the lakers a couple days weeks later whenever it was but then they basically just kind of ran the show for a while and now we're seeing them do that again you know after kevin durant's return from the injury you know they basically picked up where they left off while he was injured and just won a bunch of games with their defense. And so they're a special team, but whenever you've got special teams, there's a lot that goes into that and it it goes beyond talent. A lot of times it goes into the themes that they're taught with, with coaching, with the sets that they run. But within that, like even deeper than that, what is it about the sets that they're running or are there sets? Is, Is it just stuff that they're improvising which? And talking to a lot of them, you realize there's more improvisation than what you would think with a team that's skilled and getting this many open shots. And so I wanted to look at you know, how much are they making use of stuff that other teams really don't use as much. And they do screen. They screen plenty in their offense. They use a lot of pick and rolls just like anybody else. But they rely a lot less on that for their shots. And so if they're not using that, what are they using? And kind of the answer to that is that they're using a ton of screens but that they use them in different spots than where other teams use them and that they have different players setting them than what other teams would use. And, and you know, Steph Curry probably being the poster child for that within their offense, the fact that he's setting screens on everybody in different spots for everybody, you know, for, for guys that are coming off the bench for them. The fact that Iguodala is comfortable setting screens for David West, you know, there's a lot of inversion in their offense and it makes them a lot a fun to watch. Yes. You know, there are ways to look at them and, and try to analyze, you know, how much are they illegally screening? I think that's probably true of any high caliber team. Yep. That's definitely true of them. The Zaza. I tried stiff arm. to mention that within. Oh my God. You know, I tried <laughs> to mention that within the story. I tried to analyze it. You know, I basically showed, you know, for all the complaints about how they never get called for screens, Zaza probably gets called for more illegal screens than anyone in the league. Yeah. Statistically, you look at the two guys that get whistled for more offensive fouls than he does. And the only guys per minute that get called more and bead, and cousins, guys that get called for plenty of charges, whereas Zaza's not getting called for charges. So <laughs> you, you pretty much can deduce from that that he's getting called for more legal screens than anybody in the league. Mm-hmm. And they still probably should get called for more of them. But, you know, it, it, it makes me wonder is there a little bit of a Seahawks thing going on exactly. where, you know, Man, the way I was that just thinking that too. You know, there probably is something to that, that they're probably illegally screening so much that they know that there's no way they can be called for all of them. And that the, you know, they actually get a a benefit from doing it so much because they, you know, even if you get called a lot, you're not getting called as much as you could. And so you're getting threes out of that. You're getting shots out of that, that, you know, that you're not getting whistled for. So who knows if that's what they're doing, but I mean, there's still, at least from my end, a great appreciation for the way that they're doing something differently And that it really is a team concept with the fact that everybody is screening for everybody else and they get a ton of shots out of it, a ton of great looks out of it. And it makes their offense a lot of fun to watch.
1: Yeah, I was talking to somebody about the Seahawks analogy the other day, so it's funny that you brought that up. Well, pass interference and illegal screening in the NBA are like the most akin, you know, uh, inner sport relationship. You,
0: You do as much as the refs let you do in that game.
1: And there's something because of the way the game is played, like you just it's in constant motion, like just the very idea of what a screen is, is like so different than what we remember. It's the same thing with past interference. But what I loved about what you were saying about that piece is where you started it at. It started from like a really fundamental question, like what makes them different? And what, why is it interesting how they're different? I think the mistake a lot of people who like kind of consume this stuff do is they don't start with that, like, however your method to like getting to answer the question, whether it's traditional reporting, whether it's stats, whether it's film, whether it's a combination of all of them, you're still basically answering a question. Right? And like that what I really liked about the way you presented the pieces that you were painting them as different than everybody else, not because of how they set screens, but because of sort of the way they play. I love the Mike Ground quote where he was saying, like, yeah, we kind of make a lot of this shit up. <laughs> And I thought that was like fascinating, you know. He, you think about like all this scripted stuff. Like we have a, te- it would be really easy to kind of look at the Warriors and say, "Well, look at this play. They had this guy's screen here and this guy's screen there, and he got open." But there's like an art to the way the Warriors play that is so different than honestly any team I can remember. You know, did you were you a big Free Darko reader back in the day?
2: I, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't quite as ingrained in the blog community. And yeah. everyone else. Because you know, the, the main reason I wasn't—I mean, I, definitely to some extent—I wasn't covering basketball, and I didn't plan to. And right. So I wasn't—I wasn't kind of a regular reader of all the blogs the way. And I, I feel like I missed out on a lot of it because now I do know a lot of these people and they have like these pre-existing reputations that, yeah. I don't, that I'm not like aware of until after I've met them. It's and you know it's when a weird I get thing. together in these meetups. It's, yeah. But it's a fun thing and it, and it makes me wish that I had been kind of an earlier adopter of a lot of stuff. So.
1: <laughs> so they had this, so Schultz had this idea and I, I'm sure I'm butchering the way he's thinking of it because you never really know like what exactly is the logic. He had this idea of like one day we'd have this world where and nobody would have a real position, and like you could you would be free from the shackles of like having to do point guard things if you 're a point guard, a six three person, having to do big guy things if you 're a six seven player, and all of that and I think like now reading your piece and thinking about like how the warriors sort of like just unscript this whole thing, it makes me think that like what what 's really the genius behind them is the screens are sort of the vehicle to how they reflect their ability to kind of just seamlessly transition between roles whether it 's five different people screening in five different ways five different people shooting passing all of that what i liked about the way you did is you didn't look at it and you said well look at it isn't it really interesting the way they screen you said the screens are the vehicle and the vessel for how they act differently and i love the way you portrayed it that way i think that helped give it a sort of larger perspective than just an x's and o's type of thing you know this is it's sort of, this is actually saying something about like the way that their entire culture is, you know, and all of that, and it, how it reflects on the court. That's what I loved about the way you did it.
0: Yeah, and I think I should probably add a little context here for listeners who haven't read it or, or who might not get an opportunity to. But, you know, you had some pretty impressive stats. So we're going to go with the thesis idea here, right, which you had your concept you wanted to prove. And and I guess right off the bat, you hit us with we know it's a pick and roll league. You can watch basketball and see that currently it's a pick and roll league. But Golden State uses less than any other team. So right then and there, they're an outlier. And then secondly, you told us that 400 more balls or off the ball screens than the next most uh, off ball screens of any other team. That's. It's an eternity of off-the-ball screens. And then Steph Curry let all NBA guards in screens set with 108, which is not something you think about for a guy who's not necessarily known as a physical presence on the court or even someone that you want to have in the heart of contact uh, you know, constantly. Probably not. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and so, and so, like, but that's that a funny thing. Set, that's, that's what, what makes th- it so disruptive and, and such an outlier of, of an offense, which is ultimately, to Mike's point here, speaks to that positionless
1: nature of of the team. Yeah. That's the funny thing about, like, the it, screening. It's like, screening is not what it used to be, and that's also what I also really loved about the piece.
2: Oh, my goodness, yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing is that I don't, you know, you. I didn't get this response from a lot of people, but Steph probably couldn't have set these kind of screens in the <laughs> 90s, you know? Like, I mean, honestly, and I, I guess I didn't give this thought. I, I hinted at it where I said, you know, he's the smallest guy in the court a lot of the time, Um you know, he's setting. It, it's it's a lot of them are kind of more like rub screens. Like you're you're just doing it just to knock someone's momentum just enough to where you can get someone free. I mean, the the play that I actually thought was most indicative of what I was talking about was a, a screen that Steph set just by basically backing into someone, <laughs> and it, it freed Ian Clark to go toward the basket at a time where Steph was popping out toward the three point line, and you basically had two defenders following Steph and nobody following Ian Clark. And and so a lot of plays like that where it's just it, – it's literally a split second, but because of all the space they already have in their offense and all the space that you're getting when Steph is running around and people are chasing him, you really don't need more than for someone to step a foot or two outside of where they're supposed to be defensively or where they should be. And, I mean, if you if you make a step or two in the wrong direction or if you – shrug a shoulder like Zaza did on the example that I laid out there in game one of the Spurs series, Mm -hmm. and you send Patty Mills you know, three feet to the left of where he should be to guard Steph. I mean, the the Warriors, that's the scary thing about trying to defend them. They could shoot without space anyway. I mean, we've seen Steph make a living off that the last couple years. Even if you're guarding him perfectly, he's very capable of making a shot from 30 feet away, and that's the frustrating part of it. A lot of coaches will tell you that. Doc has said that for years you just want to make it tough on people. And so if you make it tough on Steph, you live with it. You might lose, but you live with it. But how much more frustrating is it when you actually are going to be in position to guard them and then because someone just bumps you at the last possible second, it would be like if someone is allowed to kind of trip you or just push you ever so slightly during, you know, a relay race or something and then all of a sudden you're disqualified because you ran outside of your lane. That's probably what it feels like.
1: That's a great um, analogy. A lot
2: of times you know it's just i can't imagine that process of trying to do that for 48 minutes just to guard a team that's that good on offense and has all those weapons already on offense and and actually mike i think i think it was you i think you hit the nail on the head when uh, you were tweeting and it was you or someone else who basically said it's so easy sometimes to forget oh yeah there's kevin durant there too you know <laughs> of all the guys because like This team last year, if you just put them, rolled them back out on the court this year, I think a lot of people would have favored them to win the title anyway. And a lot of the concerns that we had going into this year were depth-related because of the fact that they replaced um, Barnes and replaced Bogut with, with Durant, and they had to kind of gut certain parts of the roster to make that happen, and that did impact their depth. They had to go bargain hunting, and then you go get someone like JaVale that none of us trust. And you know, in another situation, probably still wouldn't trust. Him. All of a sudden, like I haven't heard anyone use the word depth with with the Warriors in a long time, because it doesn't seem to be that big a concern. But a lot of what that speaks to is the interchangeability of this team. Is the fact that these guys seem to replace each other, kind of like shark's teeth, where their defense can just clamp down all of a sudden, and you know, go on a streak, you know, twelve games where no one's able to really score on this team, you know, not in a way that really threatens the Warriors from winning a game. And so that that's the thing is just like it's kind of like a, a storm or something where, you know, one aspect of the storm ends, but then you get hit by another deluge of something else. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's like a it's just a really scary team with everything that they do. And the screening is just kind of one more vehicle that they use to make it tougher for you to guard them. And uh, that, that's what I find to be so cool about it is just that, um, you know, you, you can guard them, but if you're able to do it, that's something that they can, another risk that they can throw at you kind of, it, 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 probably the best analogy I have, like Carmen San If you ever had the video game, like I did as a kid, cause I was a huge nerd, <laughs> you could almost catch up to her, but then there would be one thing that they would do right at the end. And the, and the TV show was always like this too, where you could never quite catch her.
1: Yeah, I think, <laughs> think I do remember the way this. the offense
2: feels. Yep. But that's what that's the way their offense feels. Sometimes it's just that there's like always one thing that you know you can't quite get there uh, to be able to make a play quickly enough to, to turn the tide in the game.
0: Yeah, I mean it's be, a lot of that speaks to the fact that uh, you can do everything right, and it'll end with Kevin Durant on an ISO, and that's probably wrong for your defense. And right. and, and that being exactly. said, it's you know it's a lot of that goes to the fact that and you have a, a great clip in, in, that you put here where there's like a Blazers assistant yelling screen 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 and it's like yeah of course no shit there's going to be a screen and all the players are now actively looking for a screen and then they miss their assignment because <laughs> right. you're trying to be so fine <laughs> right. you know on, on every defensive possession and it, it puts so much mental pressure so much phys- physical pressure because you're chasing so many great shooters and you got to be so tight to them and then that Kevin Durant layer that you just put on there that we just talked about like that's ultimately I think you know what really differentiates them is that they're not just running a, a lot of motion and with a lot of contact and a lot of back picks and, or back screens and a lot of rubs. It's that if things do break down, or if it's just a simple transition play where Kevin Durant decides I'm pulling up on this play, or I'm going to go one on one because I got you know Patty Mills on me, or, or you know Danny Green's not potentially or not necessarily looking uh, for me to pull up on him. Right. Like that's a good offensive play, also because it's Kevin Durant. Right. Um,
1: so one thing I'm curious. One thing I'm curious about, and I don't know if you got a sense of this while you're reporting this. Like, do you think it was hard for Durant? How did Durant like transition into that sort of flow? Because that was one of the big questions I think people had is that Durant is very much coming from a structured like I get the ball in this spot and I know what I'm supposed to do in this spot type of environment. And did you get a sense of like how he was able to transition into this like kind of nirvana of sort of constant motion?
2: I think I I think it's still even now, and that's probably the scariest dynamic of it is that it's still kind of a work in progress. Now I think they've they fine tuned it. Well, enough to where I'm very convinced they can win a championship this way. Um, I I think that's just how much better they are. And I also think that their defense gives them way more leeway in in something like this, even if their offense has some rough patches. But I think, you know, I, I think there were kind of moans and groans in the middle of the season for them when you saw the the few games where golden state was really challenged, um, kind of at the beginning and the middle of the season that their clutch numbers weren't that good. And a big part of that was the fact that, you know, it, it, it kind of had that Oklahoma city feel where it's kind of like this, your turn, my turn mentality where Katie would just kind of take over the offense and other guys weren't involved. And you saw that one game where Draymond looked frustrated with Mm -hmm. it and kind of, you know, gave Katie a piece of his mind. And so I think, that was probably the the best crystallization of kind of seeing that, you know, he was still fighting that, waging that war that, you know, he really didn't have to. And I think, you know, at times, I think Steph was actually, you know, we all had money basically on clay being the the odd man out and trying to find his way uh, early with, with all these stars on the same team. And, And in reality it was really Steph for a long time. And I think, Katie's injury probably helped with that to kind of help him find his mojo right before the playoffs. And, you know, basically for Katie to come back and to pick up right where he'd left off um, basically as an MVP candidate. I mean, I, the guy has been so good this season um, yeah. and, and and finding his role. And that, that's what's scary about them now is that these super teams don't normally, don't normally come to fruition, you know, fully after one year. And I mean, the golden state has been together for longer than that, but, you add a star of this caliber, I mean, it's normally two, three years in. You remember those Miami teams mm-hmm. where they really hit their stride. That's what's really scary about this yeah. to me is that, I, you know, you can't even judge them necessarily on wins and losses because I think they learned their lesson from the 73-win season that, you know, they could easily win 60 games, and that could still be the best iteration of this team three or four years down the line. And, that, you know, just the the thought of what they could accomplish at that point if everybody continues to stay healthy for the most part is just, it's scary you know yeah, it's, it's amazing at this point the fact that we're most concerned about steve kerr's health <laughs> compared to any of the players uh after you know what steph went through a few years ago with his ankles and kd with his foot it's just incredible and it, it, it you know teams should be terrified at this point You're listening to Limited Upside right now, which means you like basketball. And that means you probably care a little bit, one way or another, about Steph Curry. If that's the case, I have news for you. My name is Helen Rosner. I'm one of the hosts of The Eater Upsell. It's a podcast where my co-host Greg and I talk to chefs and food world people. And one of those, the one that we're talking to this very week on our podcast, is Aisha Curry, the wife of Steph Curry. Do we talk about basketball? Heck yeah, we do. Do we talk about Steph Curry's secret pizza eating habits? Yup. Is this going to make you the coolest person when you talk to your friends about all the secrets you've learned about Steph Curry's pizza eating habits? Absolutely. Check out the Eater Upsell this week and every week at iTunes.com/Eater or wherever podcasts are available.
1: one of the things that your piece really crystallized and sort of what I want to kind of think bigger about is that you know this is a this is not how basketball teams have played for 50 years there is something mm-hmm. beyond like the screen setting just the idea of like this unscripted like constant check and read and react with guys that are all the same size and they can all shoot and all pass and all do this and you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier it's like sort of the the threat of like all these things happening while you're rushing around. Actually Kobe Bryant explained this really well in his new latest video. It was like just like, <laughs> imagine like trying to process all this like in real time when you're tired and with the crowd yelling at you and all that. Like there's this is not how any team has ever played. And I'm curious why why do you think that hasn't happened more often? Like we had a really good question from um, our friend Bo Schwartz Mattson. It was basically like, can anyone else du- duplicate what the Warriors do? in terms of style and fit. And like my, my feeling is probably not. And I'm curious, like what, what is it that sort of the underlying philosophy about the Warriors that sort of allows them to play this way when nobody else can? And like, can we ever, will we ever see a team that plays this way again?
2: I mean, it, probably at some point just because some of the stuff that we see from them, you know, the same way that when we first saw, you know, guys like Ray Allen and, and Reggie Miller and all these guys, there's always someone who's kind of, you know, how did someone get to be this great a shooter? And now we're watching big men. I mean, one of the things that I am blown away by, and this will tie back to what I'm saying, I'm, and I at some point would love to write about this when I take the time to interview people, how quickly big men have gotten good at three-point shooting. These guys yeah. that didn't take any threes in college, and then all of a sudden, like watching guys like Mark Gasol and Brooke Lopez And, you know, someone was telling me Channing Frye took like 20 threes in college. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys, I I watch even guys that aren't big necessarily. Lance Thomas didn't take any threes or didn't make any threes in college. And now all of a sudden is like a league average shooter from three. And you have so many stories like that. And the fact that guys can adapt that quickly, I I think we're going to see guys, you know, I I think there are a bunch of people that want to be the next Steph Curry that are kids that are basically, you know, probably to the detriment of other parts of their game are going to become these fantastic shooters. Now, whether they can do it on the move and with guys right in their face is another question, but I do think that at a certain point, the league is going to be so built around this point shot that that's, to some extent, all teams are going to focus on. I have a colleague, former colleague at the Wall Street Journal, Ben Cohen, who wrote a story about a team, a high school team, that basically all they do is shoot threes, and yep. that they, you know, they lose games for sure, but that they win the majority of them just because three is greater than two, yeah. and they shoot about, you know, league average from three or, you know, school average from three. And so the fact that you've got teams that are trying to do that and players that are kind of trying to emulate what is happening at the pro level, you're going to have more guys that can produce these sorts of skills that are based on shooting, you know, whether you have a group that can shoot this well and defend this well and pass this well and can play this selflessly is is probably a different question. But I do think at some point you'll have people that can replicate some of these skills um, you know, whether they'll ever all end up on the same team with whatever the salary cap, cap structure is at that point. I mean, this team, you want to talk about the luck that they've had in terms of injuries. I look at it more in terms of just the the, the structure of the team and the timing of Steph's right. injuries and, you know, them hitting on that many draft picks. I, you know, I was in that camp forever. that thought, my goodness, how did Oklahoma City get this fortunate to be able to get Katie and Russ and Harden and Ibaka? And I still think that is one of the greater – three or four year runs we've seen in terms of draft picks, but then look at golden state, you know, and then the fact that they not only did that with high picks, but to get snatched Draymond where they did and to get clay and the idea that you would build a team around two guys that could just shoot. And, you know, nobody thought that Steph could actually turn into a pretty decent defender, you know, and I think for a long time, people viewed clay as mostly just a shooter when he's a very good defender himself to get all those guys and to do it, you know, and, and then to actually, figure out that draymond could be a star as opposed to just being you know a guy that's going to come off the bench for you and be an energy guy so maybe we won't see that and and maybe we won't see a team that is willing to to do what this team does because they are very selfless and and a coaching staff that is willing to work with them the way they do because to me what you guys were saying about mike brown's comment was one of the most eye-opening things to me too most coaches maybe not mike brown as as an acting coach in, in place of steve kerr but Most coaches want some credit for what is happening on the court. So to say that they're out there improvising is to kind of undercut what you do and to basically take less credit for what you're installing or what you're implementing. But, you know, I was teaching a class this past week, and we were talking about the difference between Mark Jackson, who a lot of people still feel deserves more credit than he he received or that he gets um, because, he you know, he had them on a winning trajectory. They're winning more games each year. But it's it's really easy. You look at they were throwing 70 to 80 passes more per game from the last year that he was there to the first year that Kerr was there. You had Steph setting screens. You stopped putting clay on the block. You know, just all sorts of stuff that fundamentally changed the way this team played and probably fundamentally changed basketball history in the process.
0: I'm glad you brought up Mark Jackson too because there was like that point in the game last night in like early fourth quarter when it was apparent the game was pretty much out of hand at like 20 points. Not that it was ever not really out of hand. Um, we should say we're recording this on, uh, was
1: it Tuesday? I don't know. It's Today's Tuesday. Right? Tuesday okay. so
0: it, was, it was Monday. <laughs> that was, uh, it was game four. It was uh, for the sweep. Uh, we the don't orders. have the
1: excuse of travel to forget <laughs> our days. So yeah, I, don't know.
0: Know. I don't even know what's wrong with me anymore. Um, having said that, um, and, and so the, Mark Jackson started bringing up I think we should give some credit to... Uh, to to um, uh, you know the coaching staff and Mike Brown you know for for what they're doing here which I found funny because having just read uh, you, you know your article it was like Mike Brown basically taking that credit and being like no no I don't I don't want it it's not on me I'm I'm just letting these guys do their yeah. thing uh, and I found that telling because there is credit to not trying to impose you know your will in that moment or, or to be somebody who that your team is not necessarily there to accept as you know that lead voice um, and I do wonder you know how much is Kerr still basically
1: pulling strings and whatnot but yeah but uh, even so he's pulling strings in a different way. Like yeah. I, I don't know if you read uh, Arnovitz's Kevin Arnovitz's piece piece on the difference between the Spurs and the Warriors culture. I thought was really illuminating too. This idea that the Spurs they have this flow because they are so precise, and it's like you have to be here at this time, and when it's this time, you be you're there, and blah 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 blah. And it's like a it's like a clock. It's like almost like they drill every mm-hmm. split second. It's almost like their coach was a military guy or something almost. like that. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then the Warriors are sort of like this super improv like they almost take after Steph who kind of just like they have this weird mastery and just been able to figure things out on the fly and if you were like to tame that down too much and say and put too much of a structure around it you could sort of take away the artistry of it all and that's why again like to, to, to tie back to your piece with like where they set screens like what's ultimately important about where they set screens and how is that it's like totally unpredictable there's mm-hmm. no like you have to set it at this angle at this time and whatever like they're just like kind of figuring shit out as they go Yep. and the defense has no idea how to it's like the chip in their brain is not wired the right way I think there's a big thing to like all right, I'm gonna
0: start this over with there there are disruptors in sports and I like that term here because oh, man. a lot of the teams and, and this goes in everything look the Conor McGregor in MMA in the UFC, he is a free-flowing, versatile fighter. Right, he's not one stylistic uh, uh, type of of UFC fighter. It allows for him to be expansive in the moment and go with the flow of what's happening. The same thing goes for you know when the Dutch soccer team. I'll use the analogy here. I put it up on Twitter, and Mike Mike liked it, so I got to talk about it. Which is that they they started total soccer, which was your defender wants to go up and total football. Total football. Sorry, sorry, Mike. We got to make sure we're in America here. Okay,
1: (laughs) I'm,
0: I'm sitting in New York City. Okay, it's soccer here. Um, and having said that, um, but the idea is like a defender wants to go up and place, uh, you know, take the ball up and try to score or cross. Whatever, someone else is going to flow behind them. That everybody can play every position. Um, the same thing goes for hockey right now. The Nashville Predators are in the Stanley Cup Finals. They have the best offensive. They have the best offensive <laughs> defenseman in the league right now. PK Subban. Okay, <laughs> some maybe like six of our listeners will get these analogies. But the point I'm trying to make is, oh man, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is when you have these guys. Uh, like a Steph, Kevin Durant, Draymond, Clay, etc., who are ready for every moment because they're not pigeonholed in what their abilities are. They're not, you know, Draymond is a great passer, uh, and, and he's obviously a more unselfish version of, of some of the other guys in the team. But having said that you know he's willing to take a big shot if he's the one who's open for the 3 in the flow of the offense mm-hmm. on that position so it's not like he's a liability at any moment and the idea that you're not you know really in a construct of any kind here relates to probably one of my favorite quotes from from the article you wrote here which was the the Quinn Snyder part about how you know they're great shooters but they're also great thinkers and i've always looked at kind of Iguodala as sort of like uh, uh, the personification of that, where he is this guy who's never, you know, he wasn't right to be the best player on the Sixers. Uh, and he was, you know, a, a great college player at Arizona, but not a, a good college player, but not a great player. But with a team of other guys who think at the same level as him, because he's a very cerebral player, it made more sense. Then all of a sudden you have this guy who's a great passer, a good rebounder, a great teammate, and he makes so much sense with guys around him who think equally. So I want to get your thoughts on where you see this kind of apex with Golden State, which is that they have all the skill, but they meet it with intelligence.
2: That's that's probably where I, I come in with the, the last question you had: is that is this a team that you could duplicate? And I just don't, I don't know that you get this blend of everything that they they bring. I, I the, you you could find a team, well, not currently, but you could find teams that shoot this well. I mean, they they, they don't lead the league in three point percentage. Um, you know, they don't take the most threes, you know, Houston has kind of taken that mantle and probably will continue to if D'Antoni has his way, um, you know, they defend well, but you you can find teams that defend a little bit better. The Spurs had a better defensive rating than they did. Um, you know, they pass well and they, they clearly set up more assists than any other team. I think they might've led the league in assist percentage, but I mean, if, if the point is just to pass and to do it without turning the ball over and to make the right pass, Utah is right on their heels. Utah is a very good passing team, and Utah has a lot of those those things that you know the Spurs have because of Dial. And Atlanta has turned into a very good passing team, even as they've changed that roster over. So you can find teams that do a little bit of what they do, but I think it's the total package, it's the level of thinking that they've got. Yeah. Um, and I do think, to some extent, it is the kind of the the freestyle that they that they're comfortable with. I think back to Ethan Strauss's story about the idea of kind of the method to Draymond's madness and feeling uncomfortable about the idea of just kind of strangling that, that aspect of who he is and not feeling comfortable doing it because that level of freedom, especially now when Steve Carr isn't on the court with them to be able to kind of hear his voice or to kind of know what he'd be okay with. And for him to trust them enough to just kind of go with their instinct a lot of time. I mean, that, that, that is so valuable. And I mean, the team that I look at that I'm so kind of interested to watch for the next few years, and I, I wrote this in January, I actually think one of the closest comparisons we have to the Warriors, and it'll sound crazy, just in terms of some of the talents they possess, is actually Milwaukee. It, it doesn't mean ben was Milwaukee you'd anywhere say near hoping you
1: Ben was hoping you'd say Philly.
2: <laughs> well, so Philly, <laughs> Philly for a while, I actually think Philly was a team in oh, terms now you're of stroking the length his ego. in terms of... <laughs> But in terms of the length that they have and, and how many guys they had that were just kind of interchangeable defenders, they actually were trying to build something that was similar to that. And I think that's kind of what Milwaukee had done and is doing is that basically you're saying you need to be able to get out and contest these three-point shooters. You need to be able to switch pick and rolls because that's what the league is now. You need guys that can do that defensively that are just annoying and pests because of how long and tall they are and so Milwaukee has done that and Philly was doing that and Philly traded Noel and yeah. you know and we'll see what happens with Embiid but either way yeah. Milwaukee is a team that I think you know if basically if they could shoot which is an enormous if in today's NBA especially when you're trying to make a comparison between them and Golden State if they could shoot I think they would actually be a comparison not the comparison but a comparison and also you know the, the clear thing that they would need at that point, if you added shooting to that team is IQ because they're so yeah. young and this is a team full of vets that, you know, some that have already kind of been there and done that some that, you know, that are, are already happy to accept what role they have. That's kind of the thing that stood out with, you know, this adoration for Manu is being willing to come off the bench. And I think Igudala deserves, mm-hmm. you know, some degree of credit for the same sort of thing because he left, you know, a, a situation where he basically could have been the guy, He's basically done that once or twice now. And, um, you know, and and, base, and who knows whether he'll win six man. probably deserves to. But he fits that team so perfectly. And, I mean, I have my eye on that situation. I know he's been healthy enough to play the last couple of games. But, I mean, that to me would be kind of maybe a finals shifting sort of injury if he were to get hurt or not able to play just because of everything he does on the court. He ends yeah. up being, playing starters minutes in the finals, even though he's not a starter. And uh, I mean, he's so important to that team, but he's also so smart and he's also, you know, so skilled at what he does. And the fact that they have guys that can replace him, not to say that they would do a good job of it in the finals, but the fact that he could be replaced, um, you know, with other guys, especially in the regular season, but even to some extent for a couple of playoff games and that you don't even really miss him. A game against the Spurs. It's just—I mean, it's this amazing. team is just so stacked. Um, you know, yeah. I don't know that it, it'll be a while before we see a team that has all these different things that are part of the package. But someday somebody will come along and, and challenge what they're doing. But I don't think it'll be anytime soon. Yeah,
1: it's—it's going to be hard to find someone who does all these things. I mean, in Milwaukee's case, the IQ thing is such a big thing in the structure. Now, sure. The big question uh, we are going to—with apologies to Celtics fans—assume that. <laughs> They do not rally ultimately in this series, and we get Warriors Cavs Part Two. Is there anything the Cavs see? One of the things that we're that's undercutting this whole discussion of how they are is that there is a rhythm to like the Warriors. Is there anything the Cavs do you think can do that you think will disrupt that? And is it sort of a danger to having such a rhythm team that if you kind of almost throw off one element of the if you to use your analogy earlier, if you're like shove someone a little bit out of the way one way, does it kind of stop the gears of the entire machine. Like, is there anything that the Cavs do, can, can do to do that? I have some thoughts on this. I'm curious what you think.
2: Uh, I mean, I, I do think there are a couple things that could happen. I mean, I, I think the Cavs have been tested a little bit more than the Warriors. You know, I think aside from game one of this, this Western Conference Finals, that uh, the Golden State can get sloppy. And, you know, I think I, I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago, basically laying out that statistically when a team has a 15-point lead, that's basically, I'm sorry, when the Warriors are down by 15, that they're basically only down by nine. Like it's like any other team only being down by nine uh, because of how quickly they make up ground and the fact that they've basically won 50% of their games this year when they've been down by 15 or more. Um, So, you know, there there are a couple things that I think about that is that, you know, they, they did that against, the spurs they were down 23 you know I, I don't necessarily think they would have come back to win that game they, they absolutely could have and that was the point of my story but i think that you know if if something like that were to happen in game one or game two that I, I do think that cleveland could steal a game that way and if they do i think it becomes a very very real threat that they lose the series just because then i think you get into a situation where all of a sudden if it's mike brown if it's steve kerr you start you know it doesn't take but a game or two in the finals to really rethink everything and start playing a different rotation or start playing a different lineup. Um, I think that, you know, similar to this Celtic series, I think Tristan Thompson could kind of have a field day as an offensive rebounder. And I think that that could change the dynamic a little bit. It could force them to go to different lineups. Um, you know, it sounds like I'll be ready to play in the final. So I'm sure he'll start, but you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens there because you'd have a bigger guy like Tristan battling against JaVale um, who, you know, is stronger than what he gets credit for and obviously is really, really long, but that'd be kind of an interesting battle. Mm -hmm. Um, My biggest question though, and I mean the reason that I really can't find myself going for the Cavs just yet in terms of what I think will happen in the series. I just, I don't totally, I'm not totally convinced yet that the Cavs can defend Uh, about all the stuff we were talking about the very front end of this conversation. I, I just, Boston's actually not a bad tune up.
1: Yeah, I was just Cleveland thinking this because too. Because
2: they 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 actually have over the course of the season kind of spread the floor more and more and more and they've even put out more, you know, three and D guys out there, with Isaiah out of the lineup. And so maybe it's actually not a bad tune-up at all. And I've thought this several times last years. I think that time that the Spurs took out Miami, I thought it really really helped that um that the Spurs got by, who was it that they played? I think it was Oklahoma City that one of those years in the Western in the,
1: Conference Finals. Western Conference the Finals. Guy. And I thought that that helped
2: them quite a bit to have to play against Miami the next round because it was a similar type of team um, in the finals. And they just kind of manhandled Miami in that, in that series. And so I think sometimes stuff like that happens where we kind of downplay who the opponent was the previous round. And I think maybe that gives Cleveland a slight advantage, but that said, you know, like we were saying about whether you can duplicate golden state or not, I don't totally buy that. You know, Boston is close enough to what golden state is. You know, if, I, I'm very curious to see what it how much does it take out of LeBron to have to guard Durant for long stretches of time, assuming that J.r. Smith takes uh, Clay Thompson the way he has the last couple of years. If he has to guard Durant in the series, um, you know I thought he had nice little breaks and nice little rests last year actually having Irving in the finals. Um, you know I, I think back to that that block that he had on Iguodala, mm-hmm. you know probably the defining play of his career so far. And I think back to the play before that when Kyrie isolated and went one-on-one, and LeBron just kind of stood in the corner. And then you know, a play later, when that chase-down block comes up, LeBron is not rested because he's played 45 minutes for a game, but having something in the tank to be able to make that play, whereas the year before, totally exhausted because there's no Kyrie and there's no love there to take any pressure off him on offense. So having to defend as much as he's going to have to defend in this series, there's so many things to watch. I mean, I still am, am very firmly thinking that Golden State will win, maybe in six, maybe less than that. But that said, there are so many different variables and factors to watch. It's going to be a lot of fun. I don't think it'll make up for how crappy these playoffs have been. <laughs> no, I'm really excited can. to watch. Uh,
0: so with that yeah. being said, Mike, you had some
1: slightly different
0: opinions on well, this,
1: but so here's, I wanted to get your, your thoughts. I think, first of all, like what you were talking about like with Cleveland being unable to defend like the off-ball screening, I mean, if you're going to let Avery Bradley get that wide-open three like, <laughs> yeah. because of a blown switch, it doesn't really bode well. The thing that I find really interesting— <laughs> Um, is that if you watch, like, Cleveland defend this playoffs, like, they basically use LeBron as, like, kind of a sweeper. You know, they have him guarding the worst guy, and he's sort of playing the Draymond role. He's kind of the roamer. And that was, like, remember when Ty Lue made a whole big thing about, like, oh, we had this secret defense we're going to roll out? Turns out they kind of did, yep. and that was it. And so he's not – I'm really curious to see who he guards because I think there is a world where – you know, you have four Warriors players that are like, okay, you cannot leave that dude under any... Or I guess three, and then you count Draymond as the fourth who's handling the ball. He'll make a good decision if he Right. It, you know. But there is that fifth guy who, you know, even if it's Iguidal, like, I think you can kind of live with, like, him shooting. And so one thing I wonder, and I think this would be a really interesting strategy, and I think it might throw off the rhythm of the Warriors if they... I wonder if the Cavs are building to this, and I have no insight to suggest they are, and <laughs> only that what I've seen, like, in the playoffs so far with other strategies... What if they say to LeBron, like, you guard the worst guy and you're just going to kind of float around. And where you see the threat, almost like play the Draymond role, where you see the threat, like, you're just going to kind of be lurking. And I wonder if if that's a strategy that could throw off some of the rhythm of the of the Warriors because, like, that's sort of the thing about a team that is so rhythmic and so sort of improvised. Like, on the, on the one hand, they're really – you can't prepare for them, right? Because there's nothing – there's no tendency to set through – set – and that's the point that your piece made on the other hand, if there is something that's like a little out of out of whack, I do wonder if like the threat it's of like off. yeah' was having like LeBron being like sort of one step closer than you're used to to the play maybe throws things off I, that's like the one way I think Cleveland can kind of mess with the Warriors and I, I. the only problem with that of course is that if you play your normal starting lineup that means that like who is Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson going to guard then if you're right. putting LeBron on like yeah. Zaza I mean that's sort of the, the problem they run into but
2: It's think- a tough one yeah I, I, I just think I wonder I mean it, it's fascinating because I mean you can kind of go back and forth on this and you figure if that happens okay you know if you're the Warriors you're happy to pull Zaza out and put someone else in there whether it's the ball handler like Iggy who's probably going to play 35 to 40 minutes anyway or someone like, you know, Javell who who provides a different sort of threat who you can't leave as easily as someone like Zaza but I I mean I I am the, the one of the stats that really jumped out at me when I was researching the piece that we've been talking about was just how uh, the big variance between their three point percentage as a team when they lose. I mean, they drop all the way to 27% in losses uh, hmm. compared to 41% when they win. And so kind of this idea, you know, and the Spurs did this really effectively last year um, for the matchup that I think so many of us wanted to see and never got to in the playoffs was that we, we watched that, that one game where the Spurs sold out entirely, you know, LaMarcus was all the way at the three point line guarding step 25 feet out and Steph almost looked confused for an entire game because he wasn't used to seeing guys come out and defend him that far, not big men at least. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so if the Cavs do something like that, um, how do they react? You know, Do, do the Cavs have enough back speed, uh, backside quickness to be able to get back to the basket if it's Zaza or someone else to defend that? Are they okay giving that up because the Cavs know they can score really quickly themselves? They're going to be more content, I would think, with giving up points than any team they've played because the Cavs have been garbage all year on
1: defense. So, yeah.
2: I mean, they've looked good in the playoffs um, you know, against much lesser competition in some circumstances. But, I mean, there are so many different ways to kind of parse what could happen and kind of the chess match that might, as a result, if, if you do kind of play LeBron as a center fielder, defensively and just kind of let him roam, um, I mean, it, it, it's so interesting. And you know, I I even take it a step further and say, if Kerr is not there, how does Mike Brown handle that? Yeah, um, that's a good You know, we, we've we've been hearing and seeing the fact that Steve Kerr is there in the locker room at halftime, and you know, he saw a speech at uh, during halftime of, of game one where they did make that big comeback. Granted, you know, after Kawhi's injury. But you know there there's so many different moving parts to this, and it, you know talking about it makes me excited just because it it should be a good series. It could end in five or six, and it could still be entertaining to watch. just oh, because yeah. of the chess match, you it'll, know
1: it'll be better than what we've seen so far. That's for sure. Um, we can I mean, say that. for I, sure. I think it's pretty safe. I mean the other like with Cle- the other thing that I think is sort of interesting is I mean we saw this for like a half with San Antonio. There's also if you have to if you're making the total football comparison with with um with Golden State, if you're playing against them, like what you do on the other end is also related. Like, it, And there's something about the way that Cleveland is able to sort of ISO and attack that I think there is a chance that they sort of ground the Warriors sort of transition game into sludge. We saw this a little bit two years ago in the finals. I don't know if we're going to get that like to this extreme, but just this idea of like, like I, I wrote this piece earlier in the playoffs that like Draymond as a defender is like best when he doesn't guard anybody. And right. so the irony of guarding anybody, yep. The irony of like the Wings best defenders, you kind of have to make him become a part of the play. You know, you have to – and so I think the, the Cavs can manipulate matchups so that they make that happen. And I wonder how that affects, again, the Warriors' rhythm. And that that's the big question because the Warriors have not been tested at all. Like Cleveland hasn't really been either. But it's like the Warriors haven't even like got out of like – they're still in regular season rotations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, like I, the Cavs have at least thrown I, some yeah. new wrinkles at teams. Like the Warriors have not. So I, I would also be interested in some, you know, maybe some synergy stats or something
0: on on Steph's three point percentage when he runs X amount per game, right? Because when you have to guard a guy like Kyrie, that's that same stress that the Warriors put on other teams offensively that Kyrie puts on Steph
1: well they'll probably have clay guard Kyrie but it's also the it's the 3-1 pick and roll stuff where they're just going to involve him in all those pick and rolls like we saw how that warmed down last year you know what happens this year but it's sort of on a macro level it's like a fascinating battle between like the team that the team that has no positions and no roles and the teams that's all specialists except for this one player that does literally everything yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's sort of like kinda of yeah. how how it's sort of a macro battle that I I'm really excited by.
2: I I can't wait. And I mean it's 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 been interesting too to to think about you know, we were talking about the clutch statistics earlier. Um, you know, how we've we've we got so used to those last two years with the idea of the death lineup and how we've seen plenty of that at at different times over the course of the year, but it really never totally, totally gelled. You know, the time of year we're expecting to see that was when Durant was hurt. And so, um, you know, it, it, in a strange way, we, we did see it at, at times in the Utah series, they kind of close out games and and stuff like that, and even Portland and, and other parts of that series. But it, it'll be interesting to see if that if that's rolled out. You know, how do the Cavs respond? They they have enough wing players to to try to you know compete with that and to make that work. But a lot of those guys haven't played well at the same time. You really haven't seen lineups at all where. Both Jr. and Shumpert are out there, and, and in the one case that you did uh, in the last game, you saw that they both kind of flubbed a you know a, a rotation and didn't get out to Avery Bradley. So you know that that's my question is just can they manage to defend the Warriors without getting their wires crossed? I think the Warriors can handle. I, I think for the most part they can handle defensive assignments. The question with Steph is always a fair one um, when he when he really is dealing with. Adversity defensively, and you know when he has to guard somebody yep. um, who really can get to the basket or can maybe overpower him to some extent, which isn't something he's used to seeing. But you know, I have more faith in the Warriors' ability to be able to guard everything Cleveland will throw at them than I do with Cleveland being able to guard what the Warriors will throw at them.
0: Sure, sure. We have to unfortunately wrap this up. This has been enlightening, and yeah, we could go on for a long time. We could probably time. put Chris I'm sure. and Mike in a room, and you guys could just talk for about three four days um but having said that i did want to get one very last thing we had seth rosenthal of uh formerly of posting and toasting on the on the last podcast he used to be pretty synonymous with those new york knickerbockers yourself who do you want to uh, pick in this lottery real quick like one minute elevator who you want uh Knicks to well, be doing uh, or picking in this maybe lottery. who should they pick <laughs> no i want to know who you want forget who they should you're a fan of the team now you're a mm. national sports guy who, who yeah. do you want
2: Oh, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't care who they pick. I, <laughs> right, really I was going to say, want, like, why does he care? Okay. No, I'm not a fan. I, I I actually don't know much about who they should take or kind of what, what did they end up? I don't even know where they ended up. They ended up ninth, right? They slipped eighth, one side with eighth. I was eighth, eighth and yeah. fell. Um, so, I mean, I saw that and we ran a piece that same day earlier that day about how they're basically the worst team in terms of like relative to where their pick should be. Like if nothing <laughs> changed from the <season laughs> record, they're like one of the few teams that actually fall. They've seen their drafts fall most often. Um,
1: I don't. It's, I don't it's mind. karma it's for 1985. Not, not
2: honestly, exactly. I mean, they had that <laughs> coming for years and years and years. But Decades. I don't. I, I don't know enough. I mean, it seems like they'd be, you know, doing well to pick a point guard. But I couldn't even tell you enough. I mean, ah, someone nice. asked me that question. Kind of how knowledgeable are you about the draft? And the different people and I was like I I I am so consumed with stuff during the season
1: and I I really
2: aside from a Michigan game or so yeah like you know I don't I don't get any chance to really watch these guys to where I did it one year because the Knicks were so garbage they had 17 wins and so I was like let me pay attention now and I started doing these really intense draft profiles and not only profiles but actually how would this player fit within what the Knicks do? And I did that for like six or seven guys. I went on the road to interview those guys, their coaches. Their I remember opponents. this series. I broke down Synergy film. I watched every single game that every single one of them played. I tried to sit and chart statistics because college statistics are garbage mm-hmm. compared to NBA, like with how spoiled we are. I actually remember reaching out to Mike for help um, yep, to see if that's he could right. give me a synergy statistic for somebody. I can't remember who it, was. it was. D'Angelo Russell. He was a huge help with that. Well, I want you to know. I think
0: so, too. That was also the last time Mike focused any attention on college basketball, too. So you
2: guys
1: are two peas We the have no there. time. <laughs> like, it's the whole thing. I know. I know. I'm just no speak, speaking. There's of, not
2: enough time to do it. Of yeah, course. We got to
1: wrap this up. But yes. I just want those one thought out there. We yeah. said it in the last podcast. Eighth pick for D'Angelo Russell, who says no. <sighs> This is this mm. is Mike's like all time right. hypothetical right now. Yeah, who says no? Mm. All right, maybe <laughs> the Lakers.
2: Let's uh, so chew on I, that I one. Mean, maybe the Knicks should just because the Knicks are gonna. Box that kid in so much. I, just, I feel like we talk about all the creativity that the. I mean, isn't it funny to, to the whole podcast about how beautiful it is that the Warriors let their players just do stuff? And then you, the immediate question if you go to the Knicks is just like, what are you going to let the kid actually do? Yeah, yep, yeah. it's it's yeah, just like I the mean, difference so, between a,
0: a free flowing system and a shape that's defined. I don't know what shape it is. Call it a triangle. But uh, this has been a lot of fun, uh-huh. Chris. We really appreciate you coming on, man. And hopefully, we can have you again uh, at some other point.
2: I'd love that. Thank you guys so much. Awesome.
0: Cool, man. When, uh, everybody, uh, go go read uh, Chris Herring's piece we've been talking about here. It'll make a lot more sense to this conversation. And in general, just look for what he's been doing. He's a great sports writer, just like Mike here. And um, you know, A lot better than me. <laughs> don't sell yourself short, Mike. You're a great writer, too. Having said that all, guys, uh, uh, we really appreciate uh, time, as always. And until next time, this is the Limited Upside Podcast.